takes. Uh, hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keene with Ink Heist, and I am joined by my co-host Laurel Hightower and Rich Duncan. And tonight we are talking to Tim Wagner, who is the author of about six million books and stories. Um, one hell of a teacher. Um, he's written some killer tie-ins. Uh, recent uh, Flame Tree book was at the the Forever House. Mm-hmm. And um, I've read probably a zillion different articles on writing from him, and they're all fucking stellar. Uh, I could go on talking about his books all night, but uh, I'm going to let him talk now. Um, Tim, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for our readers, our readers, our listeners. Well, I've been writing since, um, seriously, with the goal of trying to publish since I was 18. And I'm almost 57, so what, that's like almost 40 years, I guess, which is pretty damn scary when I think about it. Um, by this point, you know, I've published probably about 50 books, about half original stuff, half media tie-ins, um, and I teach uh, writing at uh, Sinclair College in Dayton, Ohio. I've been there 20 years, taught part-time at other colleges, about 10 years for that, so I've been teaching for about 30 years. Um. <laughs> I just lost my train of thought right out the gate because I was looking for something. Um, yeah, and that's the the big topic here today, I think, is that teaching thing, um, given what we're talking about primarily. Um, I've used your words over the years in a zillion different reviews and articles, you know, when because you'd come on Facebook and stuff and say stuff like, well, I had a student arguing with me why you shouldn't read if you're writer if you're a writer. And it's like, I remember talking with you about that and asking if I could use that, and it was a pretty popular piece that I wrote about that because I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) And I'm hearing a lot more of that these days. Just on Twitter, every once in a while, I'll see people post that. So I think it's still still out there and kind of growing, too. It is, and it's just just dead wrong. Mm -hmm. But I digress. Um... Tell us a little bit about this new book. Um, I will tell you first before I now I'll interrupt you before you even answer and say uh, we all love this thing. Yeah. Um, I don't. Um, I've never read one quite like it before, and I've never read one that I've found as useful as this one. I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, that's the most important thing to me is people find it useful. They get something out of it. Um, it's called Writing in the Dark, and it's a book about writing horror. Um, it's kind of the culmination of everything I've learned and over the years of writing and teaching, you know, specifically geared toward horror, although some of it, you know, can apply to anything about, you know, creating good characters and making good plots, that kind of stuff. But it's focused primarily on horror. And it, I wrote it because, you know, when I started out writing back when I was 18, one day my dad came home. I was still living at home and my dad came home from work. I live in Dayton, Ohio. And so he, uh, you know, came home from downtown. He picked up a magazine he'd seen called Writer's Digest. And he, you know, he knew kind of that I wanted to be a writer, but he never made a big deal about it. But when he handed it to me, he said, I saw this and I thought you might be interested in it. And I was just sitting on the porch. It was a warm day and he just went inside. And, and that was all he said. So I read that thing from cover to cover and I was fascinated by all these different articles and people talking about writing and the process of writing. And, you know, from there, I started reading Lawrence Block's columns on fiction writing, uh, 
you know, Iden had no idea who he was. I eventually started reading his mystery books, which were wonderful. Uh, but he had such a kind of personal approach to the way he talked about writing. Yeah. You know, his voice was a big part of what attracted me to those columns. And so, you know, I said if I ever was going to get a chance to do a book on writing, I wanted to do one where, you know, I sounded like a person speaking to other people as opposed to, you know, here's just a bunch of dry information on the page. So, so hopefully I did that with Writing in the Dark. Um, um, I think you did. Yeah, good. The book's got some uh, uh, interviews with about uh, maybe 80 other writers, little mini interviews where they answer a couple questions about what, what makes good horror and what advice they give to somebody who's just starting out. Um, I also put exercises in it and uh, uh, basically every damn thing I could think of <laughs> about, yeah. about horror I put in it. And when I was done writing it, my brain like went to mush for a while. I couldn't even remember what was in the book. Like, people would ask me, and I'd be like, I, I have no idea what I put in there. It's, it's a hell of an endeavor, um, and it's we have a similar shared experience there with the Writer's Digest thing. The first words I ever wrote were because of that block column, mm-hmm. um, and they were actually not mystery but erotica because that's what he told me is right. that he started there. That's right. So. <laughs> he had a lot of he's been uh, re-releasing a lot of those early erotica novels. Uh, you can find dozens of them on Amazon now. Yeah, and it used to be you couldn't even get him to tell you what they were. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Tim, yeah, that um, like you were saying, you wanted it to be, you know, personable, like you were kind of talking, um, you know, to whoever might be reading it. And that's one of the things I enjoyed. And okay. I think my... Uh, my co-hosts will probably agree with me. You know, not only is the information in those sections great, and I kind of like, you know, when you would put stuff in there about yourself, but I think another great selling point about this book is the writing exercises. Like, I've read a lot of, you know, writing books that, you know, I enjoyed, but they would kind of like, you know, talk about the different, you know, different aspects of the craft but it was kind of just those sections like telling you about it. And I kind of think that what makes this book so special, especially for anyone looking to, you know, write horror is that you'll do that where you'll, you'll talk about elements of the craft, you know, put some stuff in there about yourself, but then those exercises at the end, it kind of like helps people, you know, put that into practice, which I feel like is more effective than if you're just reading the book and like, okay, I'm going to take these snippets. I feel like those exercises kind of help bring it home. Well, that's good. Well, I mean, you want to give people tools that they can use. It's it's one thing to go ahead and, you know, tell people you need to write with an immersive point of view and then just leave it at that. And maybe give an example or two. But if you can give them tools that they can at least, even if they end up doing it a different way, but something that they can begin to work with, I think that makes a big difference. I agree. And there's so much of it that that does make it so, you know, practical, because I feel like where there's such a breadth of material covered and it's, you know, it's it is divided into just like neatly organized chapters. So if you, you know, if you wanted to address just a specific issue having you could do that but i found you know i think what i would recommend people do is read the whole thing because i think you're not going to know what's going to be um you know what's not what's going to jump out at you as something that that actually solves a problem you know you maybe didn't know that you had um and i really love you know the way that you address like the newer writers with 
kind of the, you know, about not uh, not rehashing all of the pop culture, you know, that we're all carrying around with us, because I do think uh, myself included that it's it's a it's a pitfall, you know, because because you're just not out there consuming the more uh, the more out there kind of horror. So I, I think that's all just things that I, I feel like if newer writers read this, too, they're going to. Uh, they're going to miss a lot of uh, a lot of pitfalls like that. Mm, I hope so. Decreasing the learning curve is, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with this. So, yeah, well, I think it's very effective. Good. Um, is this? Have you been teaching uh, this book in your in your in your classes yet, or is that is it more just that you have you know th- these are the lessons that you've been teaching and you sort of put them together in this? Um, you know, I don't use the actual book in, in my class. The classes I teach are, you know, they're not genre specific. So I wouldn't use uh, this book. Plus, there's like a weird ethical thing of having your students buy a textbook that you wrote. You know, even if you only profit a little tiny bit off of it, because it's like having a, an audience that's a hostage, basically. You know, they have to buy your book if you if you make it a textbook, which is weird because you think, you know, you, you would have faith in your own textbook, so you would want to use it. But uh, so it's just kind of this weird thing. So, so you, you know, I'm lucky that I don't have a class that uh, I have to worry about it with. Um, but, you know, the, the book itself is a culmination. Some of it's stuff I worked out on uh, in blog entries because I have a blog where I talk about writing and publishing. Um, some of it's from workshops that I've given. Um, some of it's from articles that I've published other places. And then, you know, I expanded those things and kind of reworked those things when I put the book together. So, you know, some of it existed already. Um, a lot of it kind of came into existence as I was writing. I remember I was talking to Tom Monteleone at a convention once, and he had just finished writing and probably had come out the uh, Complete Idiot's Guide to Writing a Novel. And he'd asked me if I'd ever written anything like that. And I said no. And he said, well, if you do, it's it's really interesting to to go through the stuff that you know sometimes instinctively and to be able to go ahead and sort of codify it and explore it and make connections you didn't expect. Um, it's, it's one of the things I love about teaching too. It's, it's, I've learned as much, if not more about writing from teaching it than I, than I have from doing it. So the, the, the book was an experience like that too. I, I really, I, I love that, you know, that, that you, learned so much from putting it together too. And from, and from teaching, I feel like that's um, uh, some, some of the folks that we have talked to that teach it. uh, John Langan comes to mind, you know, that, that I feel like that really comes across because it's um, there's just a, there's an ease to the communication of it. There's, there's uh, also, I mean, it's, it's so encouraging, you know, because it's not, I think in your, in your introduction um, in the, uh, the introduction that was written, I thought it was so funny because he mentioned, well, and he gives you guys some ideas I would have kept to myself, you know, <laughs> um, and there's there's a lot of generosity in that, you know, in in like, hey, uh, this is, you know, it is open to you. You can do fine. You you can do all of this. And, you know, I'm going to just I'm, I'm just going to show you how and not hold anything back. And I think that's that's really effective and it's very welcoming. That's good. You know, I think that for anybody who's coming to a book like this, I think it really helps that they feel welcome or for people that maybe they're not sure horror is the kind of thing they want to try, or maybe they're, you know, really young, um, young, if just in terms of, you know, starting to sit down and work on this, this kind of stuff. I mean, I want, I want people to feel like they're welcome. Um, you know, you can't really, 
help anybody unless they do feel that way, I think. And you, you can't really, like, badger people or scare people or, or you, know, <laughs> you know, techniques they used to use, or at least they it seems like they did based on movies set, you know, like in the school rooms of the 1920s, you know. Or the nuns that, like, crack your knuckles with a ruler or whatever. <laughs> you, know, like, you, you may memorize something, you know, and be able to spit it back out of reflex, but, you know, it's not going to be, like, part of you or anything. That's how I got through college. What? <laughs> <laughs> Was cracking people's knuckles? Or? <laughs> no, just, just memorizing something and passing the test and forgetting that shit again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's too easy to do. And it's, um, it's a lot of times it's, it's all they ask out of you, too. Yeah, yeah, it is really. And the only thing that I ever retained in college or any school I ever went to was stuff on English and writing and reading, you know, and things like that. I never, the rest of it was just all stuff to get me through. So, um, so, uh, Tim, I know that you, um, you said you've been teaching for a while now, and I know that you were also in the uh, HWA mentorship program. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious, you know, what what kind of inspired you to get into uh, education and also, you know, like mentoring? And you know, what what do you like about you know working with whether it be newer writers that you know maybe already have somewhat of a career or maybe people that are coming into your class for you know the first time that maybe have an interest in writing um but you know don't have much experience with it i'm not sure you know what level you know classes you teach like if you teach like beginning writing classes up to advanced or just more advanced but i was just curious you know what you like about you know working with writers and i know you said you don't teach um you know strictly like a horror class but maybe like other other genres so like also what what do you get out of that personally like you know helping these writers but also you know seeing newer writers that are coming that might have goals in a variety of different genres that's that's like 20 questions <laughs> yeah i'm sorry that's my uh that's, no, that's my good intention. <laughs> no, it's good. I'll just, I'll just I'll kind of wander through them and answer them as best I can. But, you know, one of the things that I, I noticed about myself probably early on in high school was that I paid as much, if not more, attention to how teachers delivered the material and ran their classrooms. And I did the actual information. Um, I, I was really fascinated by the differences in the teachers and the different approaches they had. Um, and it's I've always seen it's just my nature to to want to help people for whatever reasons. Um, one of the things that really bugs me, uh, I try never to do this, but it bugs me if I I can see something or think I might have something to offer that might help, and then I don't give it or don't say it, and then it turns out I should have, you know, because something bad occurs or just, you know, I could have made somebody's life easier. Um, it's, it's not exactly like a, a feeling of responsibility necessarily, but kind of maybe. I don't know. Um so, you know, as I, I started off in uh, college being an acting major, because that's just I was doing all kinds of creative things in high school, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, I did art, I did music, I did did drama. But the, within the first week, I realized it wasn't for me. And so I changed my major to theater education because that was I was interested in theater and education and English as its secondary teaching field. And I thought. At the end of four years, I should be able to figure out what I want to do if I like focus on three things that I like. Uh, And I'd started seriously writing by that time, too. 
But I, uh, the education classes I found really interesting, the way people learn, the, 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 the trying to work out. I mean, it's like a, it's like a still part of, of, of my fascination with communication. It's like, how do you get these abstract, complex ideas to people, you know, for, out of my head and then, you know, into somebody else's hands so they can go ahead and actually use them. And so it all just kind of, you know, it's all like one big mush in my, my, life you know it's not there's not really a separation from teaching and writing and from my life and everything it's all just like an expression of me and uh, so it was kind of natural that that all these things would kind of dovetail um you know in terms of what i get out of it uh it's really it, it's really wonderful to empower people this way i mean it, it doesn't matter what we do in life because everything needs to be done so whatever you do is great as long as you're making a contribution but one of the things that I've found over the years, especially when I teach like just beginning, you know, composition to students is people are just shocked to find out that like they actually might have something to say and that even if they're not Shakespeare, they can say it pretty well. Um, and that's really empowering. And then when you have people that are, you know, people just like just like me, whose brains have been swirling with ideas since they were little and just have this need to express themselves and to create and be able to help people do that more kind of open up the channels for them a little bit or give them some tools or even just a little bit of a, you know, a boost here or there. Um, you know, it's like, it's like helping out your tribe, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's really hard to explain, you know, the satisfaction that I get out of it, but I guess that's probably the, the closest way I can, I can come to it. Yeah. I try to, I mean, I don't have, I tried to teach and I don't have that. I admire anybody. I think you guys are heroes. I admire your patience. Um, I was an assistant teacher for all of one term and I just wanted to kick everybody in the nuts every time they asked me a question. (laughs) Yeah, you get used to it. Yeah, I'm sure. But it's kind of like I just, I choose these days to try to instruct through my own writing rather than try to actually interact with anybody. (laughs) <laughs> it's all good like i said it all needs to be done there's all kinds of ways to do it so yeah so awkward but, silence but, there it no, is i was just gonna i was gonna say you're you're braver than i am for even trying it i feel like i would uh-huh. i i feel like i would uh just i'm not sure that i would ever feel like i had anything to say you know like i, I feel like i would just sort of devolve into silence at every lesson but it's less the 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 pressure the the culture puts on us is to think that to teach you have to be like like the god of whatever it is you're teaching you have Mm -hmm. to be all-knowing and all-powerful and all you're doing is just sharing something and a lot of times it's just a discussion between like in order to bring out something so you know you don't have to be like an expert to non-experts it can just be people having discussions i mean a lot of writing education throughout history is just like you know, the literary salon kind of thing where people are sitting around in a cafe and just talking or, you know, sitting around in a bar and just talking, um, you know, and if you think of it that way, it, it helps a lot. It takes a lot of the pressure off. Makes sense. Um, you know, and if you have the attitude that you're there to learn as much as you are, you know, to, to give to people, uh, it, it takes a lot of the pressure off. But still, it takes a while. It was hard when I first started teaching like at 22 and the students were just about some of them were older than I was. Like, yeah, I really don't know what the hell I'm talking about. It's what it felt like. But. 
And and at this point, I get a a different kind of reaction from students because with the Internet, they can find – I put my my bio on my syllabus anyway. But they can find out about me if they want. And sometimes they're afraid to talk to me now. It's it's really weird. It's it's almost like being – publishing as much as I have has become kind of a detriment or at least something to – to have to overcome a little bit in terms of my uh, how open people feel uh, in a classroom situation with me. Kind of intimidate them a little bit. Yeah, and I'm like, the, I think I'm the least intimidating person in the world, but it's, you know, they're not intimidated by me. They're intimidated by some kind of image yeah. that they've constructed. You know, it's like what we do with everybody, you know. And, um, and plus if they're, you know, they're younger, like they're 18 or 19, and I'm almost 60, so that probably doesn't help anything. In terms of feeling kind of a you know, more of a distance, so you don't have to worry about that whole all my students are older than me thing anymore, do you, Tim? No, no. <laughs> I mean it's, it's really changed over place. the last thirty years. Most college students now are a lot of them. Most of the ones I get are high, actually dual enrolled in high school and college, uh, so they are you know quite a bit younger. But for a long time, I mean, the average college student was like thirty-ish. Um, it's like the first 20 years maybe that I taught and then so the last 10 years or so it's been probably about 16 or 17 might be the, the median age so it's a it's been a real shift during the course of my career I, I was in uh, they called it at my school owls we were older wiser <laughs> learners so kind <laughs> uh, I, I remember that I we had a TA in one of our classes who was probably he was probably 20 too and I remember like he was really great and I feel like he you know was was an excellent teacher but he just didn't quite have control of the classroom yet right so I I sort of stepped in irritable old lady role and I used to just (laughs) get freshman whipped into shape because I was like I'm tired I want the love Lesson, children. We had a we had a good relationship. That's <laughs> he was probably so grateful for that. I mean, anytime you have an ally like that in the class, it can really help. It's it's hard to explain to people how much of the of a class is really just the makeup of the people, and it has not a lot to do with the teacher. Um, same with the workshop. I mean, it's they all have their own personalities, and you know, if you have a group of people that are there to get what the most out of it you know that they can it makes all the difference between the people that feel like they've been you know marched in at gunpoint and would rather not be there yes yeah I, yeah and there's there's i think there's a lot of uh enjoyment out of classes that are more a little bit more of a choice that you get to take as opposed to more like the core you know gen ed classes because people are more there for for the choice of being there and i feel like you know writing classes are commonly in that category um, right. You know, as you said, they haven't been marched in and, and told, you know, this is something you have to learn because yeah, I, I think it's the apathy that would bother me. You know, when you look out, I, I had to laugh because I, I know you had noted in there that you uh, were going to teach high school and then you taught high school and thought, nope, I'm getting an advanced degree because I'm going <laughs> to yeah. teach yeah. <laughs> Definitely get that. I mean, yeah, it was, it's. It's hard for you know adolescents to focus on anything at all, just given the changes they're going through, and all the distractions in terms of the opposite sex and you know trying to become grown ups and everything. Um, but also, they're just teaching them just drained me. 
I was, everybody's like, oh, it's great. You get out of class at three and you have the rest of the day. And I'm like, no, I want to go to sleep at three, three in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. I just, I didn't have any time to write. I didn't have any energy to write. And I was like, and I also realized I would have to focus on a lot of other stuff besides the writing itself. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a disciplinarian. I just not interested in that. It's just not my, my personality. So I'm like, nope, I'm going, going to get a graduate degree. Plus, you know, I thought, you know, I could teach for part-time for a while while I worked on my writing, too, um, which you can't really do as easily. I mean, I guess you could substitute, but you're still working the whole day, maybe. But, you know, if I could teach, like, two or three or four classes a semester, depending on what I wanted and what was available. So it really helped a lot in the early days when I was working on my writing. I read a, 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 an article by a director of an MFA program recently, and he said his students asked him what kind of job that they should get. These are all literary writers, so they're not expecting to make money off their. Not that any of us can make that much money, but you know they're not expecting to make any money off their writing. And he said you should get a job that affords you time to write. And I thought about it and said, hey, I did that. <laughs> that worked out pretty good. <laughs> That's why I think so many younger writers these days are like hotel night auditors and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Like Max Booth. Max Booth basically started his career that way, just writing. While he was doing that lame, boring job at night. Right. Yeah, and a lot of people say that the 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 more you have a job that doesn't engage you creatively, the more you have that saved up, you know, for your work. But I've heard other people say that if you're engaged creatively, you know, in your day job, you'll be more creative, you know, during the night when you're working on your stuff. So I don't know. I kind of agree with that second opinion, but that could be a very personal thing too. What works for one doesn't work for another. It's, you know, it's like the isn't that the law of momentum or maybe I'm getting the laws mixed up, but one of them is that an object in motion tends to stay in motion and an object at rest tends to stay at rest. And that's how I am. If I'm if I'm in if I'm in motion, I am just fine. But if I slow down, next thing I know it's like three weeks and all I'm doing is binge watching stuff on, you know, Netflix and getting myself going again is so hard. Um, so yeah, I find that actually the busier I am, the more I produce. And Me too. The, the less busy that I am, the less I do. Yeah, I did that like uh, October 2019. I watched like 65 horror movies and didn't write a goddamn word. <laughs> and then when I turned around to try to get back into it, it was just a slog to get myself back up off my ass. Yeah, and I also seem to be like a have sort of a creative biorhythm. It's about like a year and a half. It's like every year and a half I for like two or three months I kind of hit this sort of fallow period where my brain just doesn't seem to want to do anything and I try not to worry about it you know I'll still be making notes for stuff or you know I'll be reading stuff or I'll be watching interesting movies but it just feels like my brain needs a it's like it's a well that needs to fill back up a little bit yes yeah I agree with that especially with I, I you know just with all the craziness that's going on in the world right now, it's, it's like, I keep coming to these places where I almost feel like I can't write. And I've learned that I have to just, I have to go. Well, I realized that part of it is that I don't really have any time alone in my own head. My, my son is home with me and we're both working from home. And like, I had to take an hour and go walk around a cemetery by myself. And then I was like, Oh, oh good. I have seven new ideas. Thank God. I just, mm-hmm. I just needed <laughs> quiet, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot it. of people who are creative don't, they don't, Maybe not everybody needs it, but I think a lot of us need need that quiet time, that time where we are just alone with ourselves and in our own heads. 
you know, the, the I often resent things that pull me out of my head yeah. <laughs> when I'm just walking through the world. Yeah. And it's like, just just leave me be, please. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I am happy to pretend that I'm here with the rest of you, but don't, don't actually make me be here. It's a good practice, too. I mean, it's like I've just recently taken to going out and walking at night because I'm in a city and there are too many people around in the daytime. They pull you out of your head. Um, but at night, I walk through these quiet neighborhoods and I'm in the world alone. And, yeah, it, it's really productive for me. It surprised me when I started doing it because it's like I didn't really realize I was doing it. But the whole time I'm out walking, I'm writing poetry in my head. And then I come home and just blast it out and then I just have to clean it up and edit it, you know? Mm. So Yeah, it's whatever works. You know, I've also learned over the years that he, that you might find something like that, a process, and it'll work for you for a while and then it just stops. And then mm-hmm. you still look for something else. It's for whatever reasons. It doesn't you, you don't need to know why something works or why it quits working. All you need to do is just find something that works the next time. Yep. I agree. Not that I know, I don't know half as much as you know about what I'm talking about, but uh, I do agree. (laughs) Well, that's heartening too, though, because I think that's important to know that, you know, I, a lot of writers get worried about getting blocked and and they they feel like, oh, it's, you know, it's never coming back or this is going to be a big struggle. But I think that's a great point to make is that, hey, what you did that worked before might not keep working. So just find the next thing. It doesn't mean you're broken, just means you need a new process. Yeah, I tell students it's like having a bunch of keys on a key ring. You know, most of the time you have one or two that work for you, but then one day they stop opening doors. You don't you don't quit. You just start checking, you know, using all your other keys. You check to see if any of the other keys will open the door. And a lot of people, they just don't do that with creative stuff. They just stop. They think something's wrong. Uh, you know, we don't, you know, given, uh, I don't mean this to sound like a joke. I mean, if you're, as long as nothing's happened to your brain, you know, literally, as long as you're okay. You know, we don't stop being creative. It's just for whatever reasons, you know, the you need different circumstances. You need to, whatever they may be. So just keep trying those different keys. Something will work eventually. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think, don't you think, too, sometimes what's already working is still working. You just need to walk away for a little bit and come back. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, I've, I've experienced that a lot where I've gone, nah, this just isn't fucking working for me anymore. And then just take a break from writing entirely and come back and it works fine. But, you know, um, but I agree with you in that the walking thing for me started because I wasn't getting anything done. You know, so I just kind of went, well, you know, to hell with it, threw up my hands and took a walk one night and boom, started writing again. So, yep, you're right. What was working before didn't work and something else came along and took its place. So. Sure. And I think a lot of people, you know, we our, our culture just wants us to focus on just this one thing. And, you know, we don't live all that long, although sometimes it's <laughs> the time drags on. It seems like we do. But, yeah, it does. <laughs> But just we're creative people. And so in writing or whatever is just one way that that's expressed. And, uh, you know, creative people get bored by the the same thing over and over. Um, It's really weird. I mean, it seems I I haven't done any kind of research into it, but it's almost like creative people have a certain level of ADD that but still enough of an executive function that they can focus. But, you know, but every once in a while, I think even the most focused of, of creatives, it's just like you get sick of it. You want to try something different. So, you know, people who write different things or who'll just sit down and like 
start drawing for the hell of it for a while or, you know, listening to music or going for a walk or doing whatever, gardening, anything. Um, you know, that's an old saying that a change is as good as a rest, and a lot of times it is. Yeah. And um, I'm sorry. I Oh, the ADD thing that you were talking about. Um, I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. And it's long been an observation of mine with other creatives. I know that most of them don't know it, but they have some level of it too. Yeah, um, my and, wife has it. And just living with her the last ten years is, I can see the a lot of the commonalities we have. Yeah, and I can also see where I have an executive function that she doesn't. Uh-huh. <laughs> not without meds. I seem to be able to be okay without meds. But. Um, not me. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's just levels of, I think, like I said, I think, like you said, it's a, a minor amount in most creatives, but I think there is some level of it. Um, it's what keeps your brain so active and why you get bored so easy with doing something one way and have to switch to a different way. And, you know, well, that's what's great about teaching, because, you know, a class is only like an hour, an hour, 15 minutes, and then it's done and you got another one. and The semester's over and they get a new semester. It's nice. You know, I don't have yeah. to be in an office and do something from nine to five because, you know, I may I, a lot of my time is my own to decide how to grade and when to write. And uh, I just think I probably would have like died a long time ago if I was stuck in an office from nine to five doing something I hated. Yeah, I I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'll just I'll just strongly agree with that from a lot of us who are working that. <laughs> yeah, and I just Although, I think I'm just lucky to have stumbled across it that way but um i think it's really made a difference in my life well it's also the the work that you put into choosing that you know in in kind of taking a look at how you wanted to spend your time and and um you know making the choice to commit to being able to write and and working around what was going to work best with that um which sometimes i think you know with creativity i don't know how how y'all's educations were on it but with mine and maybe it was just generational there was so much of like, yeah, whatever, but what are you really going to do? And it was, you know, it's just not, you know, even in, even in sometimes in a creative writing class or an acting class or anything that you're taking, you know, I mean, you're, you're there to kind of explore what you want to do. And so much of it was like, uh huh, well, you can take this class, but what are you going to do to earn money? Mm-hmm. You know, when, when are you going to stop wasting time? And so you sort of, I don't know. And in some ways you kind of give up on that a little bit and, and just try to find something, or I did anyway, sometimes I'm, I'm bad about the path of least resistance. You know, I, I love well, my fun. job now, but I spent quite a bit of time doing things I didn't like. So. Right. Well, our culture, I mean, dr- just, it drums that into you all the time. I mean, you know, it's like telling people like when they're 15, 16, you know, what career do you want to do the rest of your life? Uh, I mean, for God's sakes, they're just, they're not even finished becoming even like the proto adult that, that they're going to be. And they have to figure out the whole path of their life. I mean, it's, it's really difficult to avoid that sort of, you know, you must make money and make money. It's something that's somehow approved by the, the culture around you. I was really lucky. Neither my dad or my mom went to college, but neither of them ever, you know, told me that I, you know, I shouldn't try to be creative or I shouldn't try to write closest thing my dad did was like he would say you know you should probably find you know probably do something or or study something that you could also have to fall back on was was about all he said you know and he didn't say he thought i was going to fail or or anything like that Um, that was back when i was still i was going to be an actor and once i once he read a lot so once i decided i want to be a writer that was it i was fine as far as he was concerned (laughs) 
<laughs> so maybe not the wisest economic advice for a for a parent to give, but it worked out for me. I can't complain. But I think it makes having a support network like that makes a huge difference. And sometimes it's just just the littlest thing can turn you one way or another way. I mean, I still remember the small things that my parents did that changed the course of my life, like my dad bringing me that magazine. Uh, one time I told my mom I wanted to be her. She's the first person I told that I wanted to be a writer. And she just instantly said, I think you'd be good at it. Uh, you know, moments like that, if they had gone a different way, you know, it's it doesn't take a lot. It's like when you're when you're drawing like uh, not parallel lines, but like lines that all come out of like one little point. They're pretty close and they start to go off in different directions, but it doesn't take them too long before they really diverge pretty widely. And uh, I think our lives are like that a lot. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, to your point, Laurel, um, like I had, um, you know, I was lucky enough. It, it was very brief, but uh, the school that I went to um, in like middle school, which was weird in elementary school, you think, you know, that's where you would get more of the creativity stuff and then it slowly goes away. But it was kind of like only in middle school, like I was lucky enough, my school, they had a class called uh, Creative Expressions. And it was all about introducing students to, uh, you know, like different art forms. Like we would we would write poems. Uh, we would, you know, write stories, draw all kinds of stuff. Um, and like we even got to like write, I think, like a little three act play. And then like we had um, whatever we did like a voting thing and then like these actors would perform it. I think I still have mine saved away in a box. Um, but like you, but then like after that, like we had those little classes and then it, it's almost like it kind of faded away, which was kind of uh, weird, but kind of ties into what you had said, you know, about how, um, you know, they'll be like, well, yeah, what are you really going to do? with this like we always had music classes and stuff but this was different in that it kind of encouraged everybody to do it rather than you know just only if you wanted to which i thought was kind of an interesting approach to it yeah that's very cool it's the kind of thing that i think maybe in the future they'll do more of just when to help people be more creative back when i used to teach business writing a bazillion years ago it's one of the things that employers would always say, like when people do these surveys, what do you want from your graduates? Like we want people who are creative. And I'm thinking they go through a system that beats the creativity out of them almost from the moment <laughs> they walk yeah. in the door at kindergarten practically. Um, so, you know, I think that that's going to be valued maybe at least I hope, a little bit more. I think a lot yeah. of people are seeing the benefits from it just from their, their technology where they can explore on their own. And there's just so much of that that compared to what it was like when I was growing up. So that may have a big impact, too. I don't know. But I think it'd be really cool if people were on a, on a you know, a creative thinking track of some kind all the way through their education, just like we're on a math track and a history track, track, yeah. track the whole time. I hope it's better now than it was like when we were in grade school and stuff like I'm I'm close to your age. I'm going to hit 56 here in a month. Well, in a week. Um, and I had, I mean, I think about like my art teacher in grade school, Miss Foster, go into her classroom. She says, art is hugely important. Creativity, 
creativity is hugely important to the world. Um, and then I'd go to Mr. Raleigh's science class, and he'd say, fuck that, don't waste your time, get a job. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so glad I didn't have any teachers like that. Or if I did, maybe I just paid no attention to them. I don't know. <laughs> but that's that's awful. They were bad enough that I remember their names, and I don't remember anything. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, back then, I mean, there was less to have to deal with. So there's the memories are, I think, easier to access. Yeah. And now when we make memories, we're making memories that are who knows how many hundreds of things we have to try to, to deal with in a given day. But back then, it was just like, you know, five classes, your friends and these yeah. teachers and, you know, whatever was on TV. Yeah, <laughs> and even like, yeah, and even like writing and stuff like that. We weren't sitting there with our laptops, you know. We were sitting there with yellow legal pads and pencils and shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and usually if it was me in a bar. At at in elementary school, man. <laughs> I didn't say anything, but I was thinking the same thing. I mean, I'm not I'm not judging. I'm just you know I'm curious. So nope. that came there up. was still no internet even when I was an adult, Laurel. I'm just that fucking old. Well, you were talking you were talking about school. I know. <laughs> yeah, Shane, I've I've read somewhere that we're the last generation or the only generation that can speak to the one before us and the one after us because we know what it's like to have lived before the internet and after the internet. And uh, and it's really weird. It is weird. It's like being able to almost speak two languages in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and it is. I mean, because there is a big disconnect between that generation and this next generation. <laughs> just, in, just an experiential one. Right. Yeah. So... And there are good aspects, too, about both. I, there are things I miss about the, the simplicity of things, and then there are things that I couldn't do without that we have today. So, Yeah, I think about the writing experience on that because it's, you know, I, I'm, you know, you're writing something, you're like, okay, what does it look like when someone dies of this? And you can go Google it really quick. Uh, but on the other hand, then I also spend like, 45 minutes on Twitter when I should just go right back to my story. So. Yeah. I always love these conversations like that with, mm-hmm. with you guys and with our guests like Tim and that, you know, what does it look like for someone to die like this? And we all think that's perfectly normal. <laughs> yes. I mean, I want to be authentic, you know, right. <laughs> um, I have a, something I'm curious about, Tim, mm-hmm. um, and if we touched on this at all, I apologize. I forget easily. But when you were um, writing, uh, writing in the dark, did you have what was your process? What was your approach to putting all that together and compiling it? And that's a really good question. I mean, I, I had a, it, it, I, you know, I created a proposal for it to pitch to some to some editors and my agent shopped it around for a while and I pitched it to people and you know finally Jennifer and John at Raw Dog Screaming Press they were thought it was a great idea and went with it I'm so glad they did because they've been so wonderful to work with and so supportive um, but I already had an out you know like sort of just a chapter outline of what I wanted to cover um, and I, I moved that around a little bit when I started to write uh, but I had a basic idea of the chapters and so I went through like all the material I already had. So any kind of article or for a PowerPoint, I just um, 
you know, put it up in outline view and copied the text and slapped it into the chapter. So I had, I had this mess of, I don't usually have a mess of a book like this, but I had this sort of weird hodgepodge Frankensteinian thing. Um, and then I just started going through it and, you know, writing around it. I would, sometimes I might have to add something brand new. So I'd open up a file, write that, and then I just paste that on in there. Um, and then sweat back and forth through the thing to, to make sure that it was, uh, it all made sense, but a lot of it just, it just happened in this kind of like blaze of energy. Uh, I honestly don't know how long it took me to write it, but it wasn't really long. I just was obsessed with it, you know, from, it was almost like I had to get it all out before I lost it practically. Uh, or maybe it's more like juggling 30 balls in the air. And so you're, you're desperate to finish the act before you start <laughs> dropping them. Before I don't you know it was. <laughs> <laughs> but, so it, it was like that, you know, and, and, and part of that was me sending out, uh, you know, the, the questions to different writers, uh, trying to contact them. You know, I tried everybody from Stephen King on down to, you know, the, the newest writer that I could find. I wanted the most I wanted the widest variety of voices that I could find. And, you know, some people never responded to me. Some people said no thanks and some people did. So uh, those I just I, I couldn't figure out what to do with them because they weren't thematic to go with the chapters and so i just said to hell with it and i just spaced them through equally at the end of each chapter just as kind of a cool little because i thought if i had like this one giant section of all these interview questions that it just wouldn't be as interesting as having them like kind of dollop through a little bit so i did that um the exercises sometimes i'd make up when i got to the end of the chapter or they might be ones i'd already known or i might have had a list of some that i would put in so you know, really no, no rhyme or reason to it. in like, like, a, like an, an overarching kind of plan. It was just sort of, sort of like a, a half organic, half planned and a lot just kind of dumped in weird places and massaged until it worked, I guess. Okay. It's Sorry. Yeah, very effective. Cause it's one of the things that I've been thinking, reading through it is like what an undertaking it would be to, to take something like that and organize it but yeah yeah and those and those um those interviews too that you put in um like with all the authors i thought that was cool because even you know in like the end of one chapter you know say there was like four or five of them just like the vastly different approaches and how you can like at least for me as somebody that's relatively new to you know trying to get back into writing how you could kind of relate to certain things from each of them even if they were kind of wildly different mm-hmm. to kind of form like your own kind of like inspiration i guess right right i, I think it's really important to hear from different voices uh one of the things that's sometimes hard to tell students is they'll say oh i'll come back and you know i want to take your class again and i'm like don't take this class from me again you've already had me <laughs> You want to go you know, hear from somebody else and see what they have to say and, you know, figure out their approach and see what you can get, you know, from them. I mean, the more people that you can learn from, the better. Yeah, I agree. Don't try to be, I mean, try to learn from Tim Wagner, but don't try to be him. And if you keep taking his fucking class, that's what you're going to do if you do anything, right. you know. I mean, because you're a great. I, I don't think I wish anybody wish anybody being too much. Be, to be <laughs> but it's like you're a great no. teacher, and I highly recommend you to anybody who asks. But I also agree with you. You know, after you take Tim's class, go take somebody else's fucking class. Tim doesn't want to see you again. 
<laughs> that's not true. I love to see people agree. Again, but but it, it, you know, there's this thing where people sometimes they get comfortable with you. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, and it can be with the, even the voice of a writer. You just get comfortable with that voice, and so, yeah. or you know, comfortable with a, a certain kind of story within a genre, and you don't venture out of it. Certain kind of yeah. structure or whatever, and it's it's hard to learn that way. I get that, but at the same time, it can be like when I was in college, I had a had a writing instructor named Greg Chapman who his style appealed to me Mm -hmm. Um, and I followed him around I took my first my very first my 121 from him I took tech writing from him and business writing from him and I kind of hate you a little bit for teaching that because I hated that class but (laughs) um, and you know and every other writing class I could possibly take that I needed I took from him when I could Mm -hmm. because you know and he's now I mean, that's one of those rare occasions where he's still a good friend today. Mm-hmm. But uh, he just had a great teaching style. But I didn't take the same damn class over and over again. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're still you're still getting all different things that he that he had to offer. So yeah. 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 Yeah, and a mentoring relationship's di- different. I mean, that's a something that goes on longer, and it's more about you know the the mentees' needs and kind of guiding them as opposed to you know instruction so something like that a relationship like that i think can go on a lot longer than just like a a semester length class and still be maybe even more effective Mm -hmm. yeah and you know i think uh, like you were saying in terms of like experiencing you know different classes and different instructors you know instructors styles and things like that um it might introduce you know people to things that they might not have even known they were interested in um like i was a journalism major through college and you know i've always had an interest in fiction and fiction writing but they didn't really offer a track for that like you had to take some kind of writing minor Mm -hmm. Um, so i had ended up taking a creative nonfiction um minor And I didn't really think I would like it because up until that point, I hadn't really read any nonfiction. And I always thought of it as kind of being, you know, just dry, just about the facts and taking that course like it. It totally opened up a different part of my brain and, you know, a different, you know, style of writing. And I found that I really enjoyed it. And, you know, had I not kind of. I mean, I was a little bit forced into that path based on, you know, the curriculum or whatever of the school. But had I not taken that class, like I might not have even realized something like that was existed, really. And um, had I never given it a chance, I never would have, you know, realized that I actually kind of enjoyed it. Right. Well, you know, we, we know stuff like this just from living life when something happens that you know, it might not be very pleasant. We didn't choose it, but we can see what it's done to us, what we learned from it, how it changed us later on. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there is, there's, you know, having, you know, being in a program and sometimes being stuck going into something or, you know, you, you choose it just because there's nothing left because you registered later or whatever. And you, you never know. So I do think that exposing yourself to a lot of different things, sampling a lot of different things, I think is pretty important. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a um, a great experience. And um, one thing I wanted to kind of ask you about too is I know you've done you've written in a lot of a lot of different genres. Um, you've written in horror, you've written fantasy, YA, and tie-ins. 
And in addition to like maybe what your own interest in, in those particular genres was like, do you find that kind of working in these different, not only genres, but like with tie-ins, there's pretty much like a whole different set of rules because you're working in an existing franchise or world. Like, do you find that kind of going into each of these different, you know, genres or even formats, like it kind of helps keep things like fresh for you. Like not fresh is a bad word, but it kind of like keeps you like engaged and coming up with different ideas. Yeah. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to, to try different things. And especially sometimes with tie in projects, when an editor comes to you and they're like, Oh, we'd like you to novelize this action adventure movie. And I'm like, what really? Okay. <laughs> I'll give that a shot. And you know, you just, you just learn things you didn't expect. Um, and then, of course, you know, everything that you learn, you apply to the next thing that you do. Maybe people wouldn't see how, oh, this action adventure novelization you did plugged into the next horror novel you did. But I, I know, you know, what things I got out of it and what things that I tried to change or do differently. And um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoy that part. Um, you know, a, a, to a writer that they change from one thing to a different kind of thing over and over and over, it can be really hard to kind of build a brand or some kind of identity and build an audience that might follow you from project to project. So I'm glad that most of my original stuff focuses on horror, dark fantasy. So, you know, it, it, it that keeps kind of going in the same direction, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not unhappy if I, you know, if so, for some reason somebody asked me to do a romance novel, I'd be like, well, I've only read two in my life, but okay. Let me get this a shot and see how I do. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned, uh, you know, writing in romance. You don't have to necessarily give the titles if you don't want to, but kind of how did uh, that come about? Was it something that you just wanted to try or uh, was it kind of like you were approached to uh, maybe write a romance book? Uh, no, I've never been approached. I mean, I did. Uh, the, uh, an editor was putting together an anthology of space romance stories. And all the all the ones she had were happy, so she came to me to write a tragic one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it worked. I did it. You know, I did one. That was the only thing. Like it was kind of consciously a romance. A couple other anthologies were sort of like that. Now that I think about it, were like there was one called Prom Night that had to be like science fiction or fantasy or horror set on prom night, and there was another one called Single White Vampire Seek Same. So everything had to be through a personal ad, but you know, science fiction or fantasy stories, horror stories. But no, there was anything that I'm just interested in all kinds of, of fiction. Um, mm-hmm. For years, I couldn't I couldn't read a Western novel, even though I tried. And I've, I've since read some romance. I've never been able to crack every few years. I'll, I'll buy several and I'll try to read them. Uh, and I just can't get through them. Um, but one year I went to the World Fantasy Convention and a writer named Marjorie Liu was there. And she's uh She's been doing a lot of comics work since, but back then she'd written several romance novels, but they were romance novels that featured like paranormal people like the X-Men, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And everybody was talking about, you know, that they were really good and had a lot of good action in them. And I saw her on a few panels and I really liked what she had to say. And one of her books was free in the, you know, in the gift bag they gave you, the goodie bag. So I read it and it was really good. Um, and then uh, my wife had read a, um, a Christian romance a long time ago that was really important to her. And so when we first started dating, I was like, I'm going to read this book because it was really important to her. And uh, it was, I wish I could remember the name of it. 
it's super popular. Everybody, <laughs> but I was like the the climax of it is when the the woman denounces her, her abuser in the, because she's filled with the Holy Spirit and just stands there and denounces him. And I was like, this is such a very different climax <laughs> that I'm used to. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess I guess if it was a high fantasy, it would have been like filled with the power of the gods and blasting the evil one or something. But so maybe it is kind of the same. Um, so they were, you know, it was different. It was fun to to kind of get those different sort of uh, uh, takes on a genre. But I just can't. Maybe part of it is because you know, category romance ends with happily ever after. So I know how it's going to end. Um, I don't know. I keep trying. I've got four yeah, books yeah. in the the bedroom sitting on the on my nightstand that are romances I bought like maybe a year ago, and I think I've read two pages of one. So I'll keep yeah. trying one of these days. One of these days, maybe I'll, I'll understand, or maybe I never will. I don't know. Yeah, I've tried. I tried when I was younger because my mom had like six billion Harlequin romance novels on her <laughs> shelves at any given time, and yeah, no, I <laughs> I read a lot of the Executioner books that she go. had, which were also pulp, but they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> I, tried to, I, I had a chance to, to like write a proposal for one of those, but they decided it wasn't good enough. I didn't get to do it. I was so bummed. Oh, yeah, that would be a blast. Yeah, I enjoy those books. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, and, you know, um, it, you know, I don't know if you're um, interested in these movies, Tim, or if you've seen them, but, you know, it's kind of interesting, like, when you were talking about, you know, romance and stuff like that, but, like, also kind of how it can blend with horror. Like, I don't know if you've seen, um, like, because I would consider, like, a movie like Spring – both a horror movie and a romance movie. So I, I feel like that. And then there's another one. I think it's either, I think it's called after midnight or almost midnight. Um, that's another one like it, but I feel like you wouldn't feel like those two genres go together, but, um, I don't know for me, at least something about the way that those films kind of blended those two, I feel like they make a really good, uh, fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say uh, I haven't seen the other one, but I've seen Spring. I was just trying to describe it to my wife and daughter the other day as we were flipping through Prime, looking at different movies that are available and trying to tell them that it was, you know, a horror romance in the, the, the literal sense that it was, you know, completely fused and blended perfectly. Yeah. Uh, and then there are movies like I don't know if you've ever seen Fido, the zombie comedy Fido. But you sh- if you haven't, you should watch this thing because it is a fusion of like a zombie movie, a romance, um, a commentary on the fifties as they move into the sixties, a commentary on feminism, a commentary on 1950s television. It's, uh, I couldn't begin to tell you all the things in it and it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. And so the romance in that is, is just as vital as anything else. Yeah. I'll have to check that one out. I've always kind of seen it on uh prime, but it's yeah, one of those things. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, the poster's pretty cool, but it's one of those things where, like, unless someone recommends it to you, I was always like, hey, I'm not sure if I would dig this, but it sounds pretty cool. I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, it, it's so weird because it's it's such it's it's so comedic on one level, but it's also so deep on so many other levels. It's it's a wonderful work of art. And. Um, Kind of going into, uh, you know, like writing into the tie-ins, you've written for ones like Supernatural and Alien and stuff like that. And I was just curious, out of all the franchises that you've kind of done tie-ins for, which one did you have the most fun with? 
Uh, I can't say. It was, a, it was a novelization. I wrote it last March over the space of three weeks. Okay. And then the movie got bumped back a year because of COVID. So I've been like, um, I have not told anybody. Only my family knows. And I am dying to tell everybody because I had <laughs> I had such a blast doing this thing. Uh, it was like a real bucket item list. But um, so I guess you'll have to wait till next October when the movie comes out. So uh, or, uh, probably well, probably before that they'll they'll it'll be announced that I wrote it. So, but I still don't have the go the, the go ahead. Other than that, you know, it was uh, Alien was pretty cool just because I remember you know back in the days before the internet reading like the movie review in the newspaper, the local newspaper about it. And I still remember where I was sitting when I read that thing. And I I think sometimes, you know, 40 years in the future, kid, you're going to write a book (laughs) that, you know, ties into this movie. Uh, So that one probably was a, was a, was a big one. That's incredible that they give it in those terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like I did the, you know, novelized the fifth resident evil movie and i was thinking about when i saw the very first one not having any idea so yeah it's 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 weird to have those kind of connections where you're like one you know i had no idea that one day i might be doing this kind of thing so that's really cool it seems like it would be kind of a cool thing to do i had never when i was younger i tended to kind of eschew tie-ins you know as kind of being um just kind of but they were they tended to be a lot more um, repetitious of whatever they were tying into rather than trying to just be their own damn stories then, you know. Right. Um, now, there's there's some great ones out there. I confess I have not read your tie-ins yet, but um, I have read some damn good ones. Uh, a lot of people don't care for them that much, but um, Alan Dean Foster comes to mind. Yep. Yeah, um, I remember reading his. I was always excited yeah. to grab like one of his novelizations right after, you know, I saw one of those movies. Yeah, yeah, and and then of course his Dungeons and Dragons stuff. I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. But. How do you, how do you find that in in approaching it? Like, uh, is it ever? I mean, do you ever feel like that is? Have you ever had trouble with one of those where you maybe I guess didn't have as much breadth? I mean, for creativity like you would on on a story that you were just coming up with yourself or is it just a different way of approaching things um that's a really good question i mean the the in a way it's not having that breadth is kind of nice because my imagination can spiral to all kinds of places if i just leave it on its own and you know if i've got a, a certain like set of parameters i can't go beyond them and so in a way, it's a little frustrating, but it forces me to solve problems in all kinds of different ways that, you know, in one of my books, I'd be like, oh, I'll just kill this person. Or I know I'll mutate into something and, <laughs> or I'll just I'll just I don't know, have this weird cosmic thing occur and, you know, I'll go back and work it in earlier. You know, I don't without that kind of freedom, it forces me to flex different muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, the the weirdest thing is is if it's a beloved property like supernatural or alien is trying not to think of the millions of people out there that are willing to to hate you if <laughs> if you mess it up <laughs> and i i just try to put that to the side you know i usually tell myself that you know everybody has in their mind like every fan has a different kind of version of these characters you know whatever they are in their own mind you know they have their own kind of headcanon their own way of interpreting them and this is just mine if, if I write like a supernatural novel or an alien novel. 
And I know that with something like that, I've got the studio, you know, somebody at the studio has to approve all this stuff every step of the way. So at least I've got somebody official. So if somebody on the Internet's like, that's no good, and it's like, well, whatever, blame blame the studio. Blame the studio. <laughs> You know, and plus, if you read, the, I always read reviews of my stuff. I know a lot of people don't, but, I, you know, I, I think like I can learn something from them. And if I read an interview, like the reviews on a Supernatural book, one person will be like, what's wrong with him? These characters are nothing like Sam and Dean. And the next person is like, nobody captures Sam and Dean like Tim Wagner. And I'm like, the only thing that changed is the person reading the book. The book's the same. The words yeah. are the same. So, you know, you just do the best job you can. And you know, hope for the best. And so far, you know, I haven't had anybody with all the different times I've done, at least, you know, attack me on the internet or maybe if I did a star Wars book, that would probably take care of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> star Wars or star Trek. If I did one of those. But... Oh yeah. Would you, for sure. would you do it if you were approached to do one or would you kind star of Trek? I'd love to. I mean, I grew up with, Star Trek, and I've watched all the series. The only thing I'm not watching is the the animated one on that they started. I watched no. some of it and just couldn't get into it. But every other Star Trek series I've watched and loved, so I would love, love to do a Star Trek book. I like Star Wars real well. You know, I think that you know there are only like a few real Star Wars properties in my mind, which is the first movie, Empire Strikes Back, Rogue One, mm-hmm. and The Mandalorian, and then after that, they're there, but they don't really you know do yeah. much. And I just don't feel like I, even with all these movies and everything, I just don't feel like I know that that universe very well. I'm not sure there's much to know. It's so surfacey in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, if somebody, if I had a chance to do the Star Wars, I, the Star Wars, I would, because it's such a huge property in terms of like just the cultural impact. And I'd like to, mm-hmm. I'd like the challenge of it. Um, supposedly they pay well. I would like that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. I would imagine they sell well. Uh, popular franchise yeah but uh i can't uh i'm i'm with you i grew up on the star trek they seem immensely more involved even though maybe on the surface they seem simpler um and i agree with you star wars is good but it's very very shallow i think right i'm curious which uh which star trek you would you would choose to write in Oh, I'd, I'd do any of them. I, I wouldn't want to do the animated one, but <laughs> I, I, what if I had the chance? But, um, I'd do uh, any of them. I like them all. Uh, it would be a lot. It would be interesting to do the original crew just because that's what I first encountered when I was a kid. So it would be interesting just to see, you know, what it would be like to approach those characters as somebody who's like almost 60. Um, when I first started watching them, probably when I was six. So that would be interesting. But otherwise... No, it wouldn't matter. I'd, I'd happily do any of them. You know, what I love about Star Trek is it's one of the few shows that I love that uh, is older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Same here. I, yeah, I, actually... I, I still saw it in reruns, so I didn't see it. People would be like, oh, you saw it when it first came out? And it's like, no, I saw it in reruns. Not, yeah. not quite that old. <laughs> not quite there. My dad saw it when it first came out, but not me. <laughs> Well, um, is there is there anything else that I know you said your your brain kind of turned to mush when you got finished with this? Is this have you started working on some other things? Or are you kind of hanging well, I, out or are you well, allowed I to did, talk about it? Yeah, I did three books after 
you know, one after the other after I finished Riding in the Dark. One was, um, which was one? Uh, probably the, was it the Forever House, maybe? No, I think no, I, so. I, no, I did the Forever House, I think, before I did it. I can't remember. I did three. <laughs> one one is the novelization I can't talk about. Oh, and the other two would be my, my books coming out from Flame Tree eventually. Um, mm. I've got one coming out in March called Your Turn to Suffer. I wrote that. And then I've got another one. I don't know when it's coming out, but it's uh, probably six months later. Um, and I think it's called, I keep messing up the title. I kept calling it two different things, and I can't remember which one we chose. But it's, I think it's called We Will Rise. And that one's about a ghost apocalypse where, like, ghosts start appearing all over the world. Um, so that was fun to do. And I wrote all of those things kind of in a, once, you know, uh, lockdown happened, it was just like this giant flush of energy. And then I started to slow down. I did a whole bunch of short stories and articles uh, after that, and I'm, I've got another Lane Tree novel due on the 31st of January, and I'm, I got about 50 pages into it so far. Um, it's moving slow, but my wife always reminds me they always move slow at the beginning, and then it's, it's like going up a roller coaster hill and then going down later. I'm still like maybe only a third of the way up the roller coaster hill right now, but it'll hopefully go a lot faster when I get to it. Um. Sorry, go ahead, Laurel. No, I was just, I was going to observe. That's awesome. Ah, <laughs> I agree. Especially, I love the uh, the ghost, the ghost apocalypse one sounds fantastic. Or the, yeah, yeah we'll see. Apocalypse Uprising. Sorry. Yeah, well, yeah, Apocalypse is good, too. Whatever, it's all good. Um, we'll see. I haven't heard from Dawn about it yet. I'm always like, I, I'm probably every writer does this, but I'm convinced that the, the next novel is going to be the one that's finally the piece of crap that the editor is like, <laughs> what the hell are you thinking? with this uh you know and so i don't know and i always each novel i try to do different things and so i I experiment with weird stuff and i just let my imagination go wild wherever it wants to uh, at least with my own stuff i do so who knows i'm i'm always convinced this is the one that's not that he's gonna hate so so we'll see me too man i uh like i had someone shortly after i kind of came out of the closet as a poet um had someone invite me to write poetry for an anthology they were working on. And even as as an invitee, I turned in like five poems to him and I just knew he's going to come back. Nah, never mind, dude. Sorry, I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I've been able to to do okay despite feeling this way long enough that Uh I can kind of set it to the side and it doesn't stop me from, from writing something. But, yeah, once it's written and sent off, it's just like, oh God, I just just among like pins and needles waiting to hear, and I'm sure pretty much everybody's like that. Yeah, I almost yeah. want to put a disclaimer in submission emails. Like, it's okay. I know you're gonna hate this, and I'm already prepared for that, so don't worry about hurting my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should be like like standard part of the format, like a cover page and all that. Yeah, <laughs> we put that in there. Uh, this sucks, but I hope you like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I hope it doesn't suck too much. <laughs> it's going to suck no matter what, but as long as it's not too much, I'll be okay. As long as it's good enough to fool people into thinking it doesn't suck, that's all that's I right. care. Right. <laughs> um, it's all uh, it's it's all a learning process. No matter how long you do it, no matter how many things you publish, no matter how many things you write, you're always going to have that little tiny bit of 
imposter syndrome in the background there going, yeah, you don't quite know what you're doing yet. Yeah, and I think it might have been Chuck Wendig, maybe, who wrote the other day on social media that it's like, you know, each time you write something, you have to learn how to do it because you've never written that thing before. Uh, oh, it's amazing. You don't. Yeah, I mean, it's you've got enough experience to approach it, but you've never written that thing before, or you never will again. You'll go on, even if it's what you write is similar the next time, similar genre, whatever. It's still a brand new thing, and you got to figure it out. That's part of what's so much fun about it too, yeah. and maddening, but also fun is trying to figure that stuff out each time. Uh, maddening, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, I'm looking at. Uh, Looking at my clock here, I'm going to have to cook dinner for my wife pretty soon. It's my survival tactic. <laughs> um, so, uh, do you have uh, anything else you want to share with us tonight, Tim? Not just that I had a great time chatting with you guys. I love it when things just become kind of a free-flowing conversation. So, this is great. That's the way we roll. We lo- The reason we started doing it this way, I think it just happened organically, really, but it, we all realized that we're learning so much from you guys when we just have these conversations like this that, you know, and that makes me feel like, okay, then our listeners are also learning stuff from you. They're not just getting information about you, but they're actually getting lessons from you, too, yeah. inadvertently. Um, and we love that format, and we uh, love that you came on and spent this time with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. I had a blast. Always. We'll have you on again, I'm sure. Uh, This has been a very, very interesting conversation, and anybody listening to this, um, it is no bullshit and no hype when I tell you that Writing in the Dark is going to be one of the best books of its type that you've read so far, Um, and if you don't have a copy of it, order a copy of that fucking thing um is it out now tim oh yeah yeah it came out in september okay um yeah order it read it you'll thank me um rich and laurel anything else i i second that definitely um definitely would recommend it even if you think that you're not going to be able to learn something from a book like this i think you're going to be surprised so yeah definitely grab it yeah, absolutely. Uh, echo what Laurel said, and also thanks for uh, coming on, Tim. And uh, I and like my co-hosts have said, uh, you know, as someone who just started getting back into writing, um, this book is great. And even like Laurel said, whether you're a beginner or an established writer, there's a lot of stuff you can learn from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Tim Wagner, everybody, um, thanks a lot, Tim. Uh, we will talk to you again soon, and I really appreciate you being here. All right, thanks so much. You guys take care. Uh, Have a good night, Tim. You too. Bye. Bye. Stop, baby!